On the 21st of March 2022, the Council of the EU adopted a strategic compass, which in short is a roadmap for the EU to become a stronger security and defence sector. But what does this really mean? And does it change the EU's role as a security actor in any significant way? These are some of the questions we will discuss in this episode of The World Stage, a newbie podcast on current affairs in international politics. My name is Pernille Rikid and I'm a research professor at NUPI and the head of NUPI Center for European Studies. And I will be your host for this episode on the world stage. This, this strategic compass has been worked on for some time, but had to be rewritten in the very last phase due to the Russian change, change of behavior and in the end also a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Since the 1990s, the EU has adopted a series of documents aiming at strengthening the Union's defence capabilities, and no doubt there has been progress. The EU has since 2003 undertaken over 30 crisis management operations, and a series of initiatives have been taken to boost the integrated European defence capabilities. This has been done through various mechanisms such as the Permanent Structure Corporation, PESCO, and the European Defence Fund. Still, the EU has struggled to overcome one overarching problem, and that is to act rapidly when faced with a crisis that also requires a military response. The newly adopted strategic compass aims at filling this gap. But but is this document something qualitatively different from other documents that the EU has produced since the Common Security and Defence Policy was first established in the early 2000s? This is what we will discuss in this podcast. And to do this, we are very fortunate to have Stephen Blockmans, Research Director at SEPS and Professor at Amsterdam University with us here today. Welcome to you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Stephen, uh, you have together with some colleagues written a SEPS report on the strategic compass and what it means for European security and defence policy. Perhaps you could start by saying a little bit about what this strategic compass is, and maybe also explain to us why it is called a compass and not a concept or a strategy, uh, which are the concepts that are perhaps more commonly used for these types of documents. Yes, well, the strategic compass is is a policy document that is meant to guide uh, the future development of the EU in security and defence. And it started in June 2020, when the member states tasked the high representative to start a two-year reflection process uh, to develop a strategic compass, one to guide the implementation uh, of the security and defense dimension of the EU's global strategy of 2016. And the objective of the strategic compass is to propose operational guidelines uh, to enable the EU to become a more full-fledged security provider and to do that, four strands uh, of work have been identified as being key to this assignment. The first is crisis management under the basket to act. The second is resilience, which is called secure in the document. The third is capability development under the label invest. And lastly, international cooperation or partnerships. And drawing on the first ever shared assessment of the threats and challenges the EU faces, a draft paper was put forward in November 2021, and that draft language was actually sub, um, significantly revised to reflect a worsening relationship with Russia, of course, with the massive troop buildup back then 
on the eastern border of Ukraine, but also the growing military capacity of, uh, of China. And in view of this return of power politics, uh, which is, of course, characterized by increased transactionalism, fluid partnerships, the weaponization of economic inter interdependence, um, the final document recognizes the need for an enhanced EU security and defense across a multitude of realms, and uh, I've mentioned this before. Um, and, well, you, you asked why is it called a compass, not a concept or, or a strategy. I think this is mainly to do for, for branding purposes, uh, really, uh, to establish something unique uh, and to differentiate it from NATO's strategic concept, which, um, well, I, there have been seven of those since uh, the creation of NATO in 1949, and the current one uh, from 2010 is bound to be replaced in, uh, in June at the Madrid uh, summit. The compass is also, the name at least, is, is aimed to di differentiate it from a, a traditional military strategy, which is uh, therefore not to suggest that this policy document of the EU um, is a planning document aimed at directing overall military operations um, and movements in, in future conflicts. So, um, in, in a way, this, um, this strategic compass is a sub-strategy, as I mentioned, of the 2016 global strategy, just like there was a strategic outlook on China or an enlargement strategy. Um, and uh, in the thematic sense, therefore, the strategic compass um, uh, is, is a roadmap, as you mentioned in your introductory remarks, uh, to flesh out the ambition of the EU to become an autonomous, credible and responsive military actor. Yeah. But, uh, but the compass has been referred to as a significant shift in European defence, security and defence policy. And, and do you really agree with this assessment or is it just another document in, in the series of EU documents in this, uh, in this field? Because it has been quite a lot of documents produced. Yeah, it, it's true. Um, and you alluded to that uh, already. There's been since 2016-17 several um, initiatives that have been launched, uh, permanent structured cooperation, to, to develop capabilities of the 25 member states that participate in it, a supervisory m mechanism on defense planning, which is called the CARD, a uh, kind of comprehensive annual review in defense. Now, the COMPASS is, is supposed to accelerate all of these uh, initiatives. What it is not, and this is maybe the misnomer uh, of, um, of, the, of the policy document, it's, it's not a COMPASS as in a device that shows the cardinal directions um, used for navigation and, and geographical orientation. Um, I mean, it, it may have a magnetized north in, in the sense that the, the aim is really to, to look at the development of a European defense union further down the line, but um, it doesn't have a, a magnetized needle that helps the EU to reorientate itself, to reposition itself when it is um, the subject to geopolitical pull and push forces and has to basically rebalance its interests in light of, uh, of the objectives. But so is it, is it a significant shift? I wouldn't say not entirely. I mean, of course, spin doctors of the, of the EU have, have been quick to hail the strategic compass as a transformational document for an EU that is in danger, as High, uh, High Representative Borrell has been going around saying for the last couple of months. 
but to qualify it as a transformative document, I, I, I suppose that raises the question whether this document uh, presents an unprecedented policy response to the uh, EU's danger, <laughs> the danger it's in, and I don't think it does. Um, or whether it will lead to a change um, in how the EU designs, conducts, implements or enforces the security and defense capability build-up in the future. And I think th there may have been an acceleration of that and, and certainly a greater level of detail in the different baskets which I mentioned earlier, but uh, I don't think it changes the modus operandi uh, mm -hmm. per se. But, but, I mean, this capability development, this has been ongoing for some time, and maybe the major change was in 2017 when you had PESCO and EDF, and then it started. So now this is a continuation, if I understand you co correctly, maybe kind of a reinforcement of that process. But another thing that is in the document is this more flexible um, decision-making capacities or, or trying to uh, have... A, ad hoc coalitions uh, to, to delegate um, delegate um, capacity to either member states or other mini-lateral organizations to act. So I just wonder if, if do you think this uh, may change um, the union's cap capacity to, to act faster? Because that has been one of the, the, the main challenge, challenges for the EU is to act rapidly, at least when it comes to, to military response um, in, in, in face, faced with the crisis. So these uh, more flexible decision-making uh, formats that are indicated at least in the strategic com compass, do you think that would make any change? Uh, yes and no. Uh. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, it, this comes out of the, the shared threat assessment, which I mentioned before, which is the first in the EU's history, in a way. And that, that's, of course, a welcome innovation, let, let that be clear. And um, it should probably be revised quite soon. Um, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, this, the text was substantially rewritten in the last month before its formal approval, so to take account of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine and basically reestablish a newly found consensus on the danger that Russia poses to the European uh, continent. Of course, the fact that it had to be rewritten also uh, betrays a, a certain uh, lack of strategic foresight on, on the part of the EU collective and raises the question whether the final document may contain shortcomings that could otherwise be <laughs> prove fatal to, to the EU. Um, China and the Indo-Pacific in particular are a bit downplayed, um, uh, perhaps, and I wonder whether the strategic concept of NATO will pay more attention to that. I, I suppose it should. But in the ACT um, first basket of the strategic compass, um, there is indeed um, an appeal for member states to for more rapid and robust action in modular uh, formats, in a way, uh, coalitions of the, of the able and willing, and the, the, the final document provides a bit more clearly um, how these, these types of um, operational scenarios um, that a new 5,000 troop so-called rapid deployment capacity would, uh, would engage in uh, with the necessary training and uh, military exercises that would precede it. Um, with a greater involvement also of the permanent 
military headquarters of the European Union, which have been created in, uh, in 2017, I believe it was, 2016 even. And according to um, the creation of a troop um, rotation um, cycle register to enhance the level of predictability, of course, um, on, on the side of the member states. But in a way, this is the old battle group uh, concept, which has been around for quite a while. And what it has never been uh, deployed. It has never been employed is simply because <coughs> the decision-making procedure uh, requires, of course, unanimity and the, the troop or the, the member states that are on standby on that rotational basis, uh, when called upon in the, in the hour of need, uh, do not wish to uh, send their boys and girls in harm's way and also pay for it, uh, not through an EU uh, general budget. And whilst there has been discussion on these two main elements in uh, w which have hampered the deployment of the battle groups, the creation of this new 5,000 strong um, rapid deployment capacity has not resolved these issues as of yet. Basically, the strategic compass includes a kind of rendezvous um, paragraph saying we will need to address this in the future. But on the ACT front, um, at this level, expeditionary force uh, packages, that hasn't been resolved yet. What we have seen is, of course, the mobilization of uh, quite a bit of lethal aid under the European Peace Facility to provide arms and munitions to, in particular, the Ukrainian armed forces. And I think this is a laudable uh, development. Um, it helps much, of course, to bolster the, the EU's credibility vis-à-vis um, -vis the, the defense of, of non-EU countries against, in this particular case, Russian aggression. But it has global uh, reach, this, this, um, this European peace facility. <coughs> and so in, in that sense, I think there is already um, with a strategic compass, which was, of course, um, uh, published in parallel with the, the first month of the uh, renewed conflict in Ukraine has, has already proved some of its mettle, at least. Mm. But going back to, to mm. these uh, opening up for the more flexible decision-making structure, when I read the document, I, I have a feeling that there is an intention to, to, uh, to mm. make this easier uh, to take a decision and, and therefore also deploy forces, this new force. And that, um, like what happened in, in, in Mali, for instance, it was France taking kind of the responsibility of this operation. They wanted to do it uh, together with the EU, but s that was too slow. So they decided to do it. I have a feeling when, when you read the document that now they try to institutionalize that kind of delegated capacity. So it's possible now in the next, uh, if you have a crisis somewhere um, where it's natural for the EU to engage, to, to kind of delegate this to uh, the European intervention initiatives, uh, French-led uh, to be able to kind of um, have some kind of coalition of the willing with e EU mandate, so to speak. Um, I don't know if you understand the document in, in the same way, um, but that would lead to, could lead to a significant shift in the, in the decision-making capacity and the actual deploying, be able to deploying forces in, in not as an EU institution as such, but at least mandated from the EU. No, that's true, but... Um it, it would still require, and, and I refer to the use of EU structures like the, the military headquarters, uh, it would still require, of course, that these uh, peace operations in the long term would be migrated from uh, those coalitions of uh, EU member states 
uh, to bring them under the EU command and control um, uh, mechanisms through Article 44 of the uh, EU treaty. Um, and in that sense, I think member states should, uh, should enhance their preparedness to use um, a common pool of material um, for CSDP missions and operations where the strategic compass wants to invest even further. And I refer to the PESCO um, uh, projects uh, before, 61 of them uh, which have already been uh, launched. And so the idea is, of course, to have this upward thrust towards uh, a common response by using the institutions and gradually, as they come online, the capabilities which will have been developed in the uh, defense industrial sphere and, and thus uh, give more credence to the EU as a whole, basically uh, operating in its uh, expeditionary response, not just a coalition of, uh, of member states, even if they may be, um, they may be initiated uh, mm -hmm. in that fashion. If this is not a move towards more differentiated integration and that uh, the EU, you will <laughs> I don't know, this is my take on it, that we actually move towards more differentiated integration in this area, but uh, maybe you don't see it that way. No, I mean, the, the, op the, the opportunity certainly exists uh, for these modular type of um, rapid reaction forces. Um, my take on that would be that the common framework that the EU provides um, in both its uh, intelligence sharing structures, its command and control structures for operations are necessary in order to, uh, to, to integrate basically the different strands of uh, EU external action, not just in the security and defense field, but also with aid uh, development or if, if it is in the neighborhood with other instruments that the EU should should apply in a, in a coherent fashion. And, and there it becomes necessary, I think, to eventually upload, if you want, uh, those coalitions of the willing um, in, into the regular structures of the EU. But this may, may take time. I mean, this, it, this process has been a bit slow. And, and um, so I, I wonder um, if this is to happen. Uh, and now we live in a, in a very kind of uncertainty in, in, a, in a period of, of, of uncertainty and crisis may appear that where the EU should uh, act perhaps also militarily. So what, what needs to happen in the coming months uh, for, for, for this compass really to have a, a, a to, to, um, to be a significant change? And what are the key challenges as you see it? Well, implementation, 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 <laughs> as yes. they say. Um, if, the, if the measures outlined in the document are reinforced by effective uh, implementation and, and duly complemented uh, in June um, by NATO's forthcoming strategic concept and the EU-NATO joint declaration that should, um, that should accompany it, then the EU might over time indeed appear as um, in, in the eyes of others as a more credible military uh, actor and then <laughs> the strategic compass will have will have been ink well spent but um, I think it is key now to to, to bank on the uh, the endorsement of uh, the member states they've formally approved the strategic compass in the Foreign Affairs Council the European Council later uh, that week in at the end of March um, welcomed it as well and so um, of course it ultimately rests the implementation on 
whether capitals of EU countries will put their money where their mouth is and mobilize extra defense spending for the development of the necessary cap uh, capacities th uh, through their European Union. We've seen as a result of Russia's aggression against Ukraine that uh, several EU countries have ramped up their uh, EU defense spending. Most eye-catching has, of course, been Olaf Scholz's, uh, the German Chancellor's announcement that uh, that would add 100 billion euros uh, for defense spending. The hope is, of course, that part of that is channeled through the EU and, and the PESCO projects in particular, which would then equip over time the CSDP missions, the common security and defense policy missions that the EU is sending out um, uh, under its uh, Blue Helmets uh, Blue Helmets program. Um, so these these investments must ultimately meet the commitments that EU member, state, member states themselves have subscribed to under and the PESCO projects uh, and be bolstered by uh, by the need of of national armed forces that that seek uh, synergies, you know, and complementarity with this expanding ecosystem of defense funding and uh, and cooperation. And so, in this, um, I think member states. And you ask for for potential obstacles. I mean, there's a political will. That's one part, of course, but democratic oversight. Um, is key in this as well. As more and more development happens within the broader realm of common security and defense policy, where famously the European Parliament has no say, uh, other than just to be informed um, on a regular basis about uh, you know the, uh, the main steps of the development of uh, common security and defense policy of the EU, and be consulted by the High Representative on a regular basis. That, that doesn't amount to much, of course. So... Um, I think over time, uh, and that becomes more acute if money is being spent uh, through this European Peace Facility, which is an off-budget instrument of coordinated through the EU, which means that whereas in other fields the European Parliament has the power of the purse, it doesn't have, uh, it can't provide democratic scrutiny through its budget powers over these new uh, funds that that channel well, arms and munitions through EU structures to third countries, um, where the EU, the peace project, all of a sudden becomes a, you know, a party to a conflict, even if it's waging war against Russia through its proxies of, of the Ukrainian armed forces. So th there is a, a democratic uh, legitimacy gap which needs to be plugged. Uh, and this, this clearly shows already the, the limits that have been reached in this particular field of the Lisbon Treaty. And with the Conference on the Future of Europe now ending uh, in a raft of um, recommendations, including treaty change, I, I suppose this would be an area that one could look at uh, mm. a bit more closely. Mm. But do you think that, that what we see now, because the EU has, uh, as you said, through the European Peace Facility, reacted also reacted rapidly um, uh, when it comes to the crisis in Ukraine with with uh, weapons and, and support and coordinating and financing uh, weapons delivery. Um, while NATO has, of course, this role of territorial offense and deterrence and cannot do much because NATO should not be involved to have a kind of um, direct confrontation with Russia, of course. So do we see now a certain division of labor between the two 
institutions. Um, well, the e we see NATO kind of now returns to, to its kind of core task of, of territorial defense and deterrence, and the EU has uh, increasingly showed its relevance through its capacity to do, to, to provide uh, weapons, uh, uh, kind of c civilian and humanitarian aid and all that. Um, so is that the, the kind of role that we, we will see in European uh, secu EU security and defense policy rather than uh, this uh, capacity to act uh, militarily? Yes, I, I think um, I think you're, you're on to something there indeed. Uh, NATO clearly has refound its um, mojo as a cold warrior, but it is bound constitutionally, if you want, by the Washington Treaty to territorial defense. And in fact, it's been wary um, about not becoming a party to the conflict uh, to the point that it insists that the weapons, uh, weapon deliveries, uh, the intelligence sharing, um, to the Ukrainian armed forces do not constitute um, proxy warfare with, uh, with Russia. The EU, on the other hand, has gone further, uh, as, you, as you note, um, and further than at any time uh, before in its integration process, and providing what it euphemistically calls lethal aid to the Ukrainian armed forces, openly saying, by way of its high representative, that the dispute will be decided on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's quite something for yeah. uh, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate <laughs> of <laughs> yes, 2012. And, so, and, and it has recently also upgraded its uh, military advisory mission uh, in Ukraine, mandating it, funding it to assist in the collection of evidence uh, about alleged war crimes and crimes hum against humanity. And, well, the EU, which is um, still not seen uh, by Russia and many others, of course, as a credible military power, is, is therefore able to go out of area where NATO isn't. And in, in terms of strategic posture and, and defense arrangements around Europe, I think there's a growing sense that um, the combination of NATO and EU memberships might in the future uh, provide uh, the most comprehensive and, and effective of security guarantees. And we've seen, of course, well, I mean, first, 24, 21 member states of the EU are a member of NATO. Another four NATO allies are applicants of NATO membership. Uh, those Sweden and Finland will probably join. Finland and Sweden are about to join. Denmark will hold a referendum to lift its opt-out from the EU's uh, common security and defense policy. Um, and Does this mean that you can see uh, foresee some kind of integration between the military component of, of the EU and the kind of European pillar of NATO? I think there's a great deal of cooperation between the two organizations. Uh, they have mapped out 70-plus joint actions, and uh, the Madrid summit in June is, is bound to uh, to flesh those uh, out, to, to upgrade them as well, uh, to add new ones. And I think, indeed, um, the adoption of, the, of NATO's strategic compass offers an opportunity to spell out in more concrete detail uh, how the two organizations should... Um, should be more complementary uh, to one another, both at the headquarters as well as in the field. Um, and, and of course, the, the development of uh, security and defense capabilities of the uh, EU21 that are members of NATO strengthen um, their own armed uh, forces that can be used uh, for NATO purposes. I mean, there's a single set of forces that member states use for the EU, for NATO, for UN peacekeeping operations, for or whatever else they, they want to use them for. 
So yes, I think it uh, it bolsters that that type of European pillar within NATO, if if that's mm. what you want to call it. Maybe uh, maybe NATO will be uh, the Europe, the kind of military arm of of the EU, in the end. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, but but you do see a proliferation of uh, of um, also more regional uh, defense alliances in 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 the through the Nordic Council. I could well imagine. Mm. Uh, that there w- there will be a strengthening of, uh, of of the security and defense component mm. uh, there. Mm. Of course, now talking about the Nordic, um, I mean Norway will be kind of the uh, the odd man out. So when Sweden and Finland join uh, NATO, uh, Denmark will uh, will probably now fully join EU's defense uh, policy, uh, and Norway is still not a member of the EU. So. Of course, uh, this being a Nupi podcast, um, we are interested in, in in what kind of role what this means for Norway, uh, and what this means for for third country participation more generally. Uh, the strategic compass and the, the recent devel- development. Do you think it has become easier or more difficult? To for for third countries to participate, Norway already has a lot of agreements with the EU in this area, participating quite a lot. Um, but how do you see that for 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 the future? And um, uh, as far as I understand, f- when it comes to the European Peace Facility, uh, Norway has decided to to uh, to um, to go th- uh, to 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 uh, give weapons uh, to. Um, Ukraine through the British mechanism and not uh, not uh, the European peace facility. Um, uh, I think this has to s- to do with some rules on the Norwegian side, but I don't know if if there are maybe are some some uh, some uh, challenges also on the EU side. So a little bit about but what how you see the potential for for third country participation, especially small countries like Norway. Yeah, well. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, Historically, of course, third country participation in EU projects um, has been confined to CSDP engagements, common security and defense missions and and operations, where Norway, like Canada, like Turkey, uh, like Georgia, uh, to name just a few examples, have participated in the EU's uh, missions and operations uh, framework. And of course, if one thinks about the future development of uh, the European or pan-European security uh, architecture, then um, it is clear that uh, non-EU countries will help shape that uh, that architecture as well, in which the EU will be one of the organizational frameworks um, uh, that that will hope to act in complementarity with uh, with the others in this sphere, whether it's NATO or the OSCE in a rev- in a revamped form uh, or whatever. So, I think that opens the door for um, for some flexibility on the EU side. With the launch of uh, PESCO in 2017, uh, we know that uh, there are conditions arrangements uh, for Norway, the US, uh, the UK, other countries. To 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 cooperate, um, also to to benefit Norway at least uh, from European defence uh, funding, um, where this has been a bit more difficult for uh, for countries like the US. But but even there, the general conditions under which third parties could exceptionally be invited uh, to participate um, have been have been hammered out, and so. Um, whilst the strategic compass um, puts a lot of emphasis indeed on partnerships, 
simply because the EU at the moment doesn't have many uh, capacities to go by itself. <laughs> it, it needs to rely on, on, on partners. I think there is, um, there, there is generally an, an openness in the Council decision which has uh, set up the European Peace Facility also to, uh, to allow for uh, third country budgetary participation. Um, and I mean, the European Peace Facility is, uh, is, the, um, is a follow-up to a previous Athena mechanism and African Peace Facility, um, which is financed by contributions of EU countries mainly, but um, which has been open in the past to uh, non-EU contributions as well. And even if the Council decision uh, creating the European Peace Facility does not spell out in black letter detail what the third country participation will be, I think there's a precedent to go by, which um, which should be applied in, in the same logic, basically allowing for voluntary contributions to uh, the EU's facility, albeit subject to prior approval by the Council of the EU. And that is maybe uh, a delaying factor, um, which may compound domestic export control regulations on the Norwegian side uh, that may have explained, you know, the, the routes to go to uh, through uh, a UK-based uh, mechanism. But in principle, uh, I think the European Peace Facility ought to be open yeah, uh, for exactly. Norwegian and for non-EU other non-EU country participation. Mm. Thank you so much. I think uh, we will end uh, this uh, podcast here. There is a lot more to discuss. But thank you so much, Stephen, for participating to, to World Stage, the Newbie podcast. And goodbye. Mm -hmm.